one of the things that we focus on is what we're for, not what we're against. I can remember driving up the freeway in Connecticut when I was in college, and there was a sign that said, are you dying for a cigarette? And a lot of people say, yeah, I am. It's clever, except you're focusing on what you're against. And instead, what you can do intensively with hypnosis is focus on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. We all have lots of urges that we don't act on. You'd like the urge, the money in the local bank, but you don't go take it because you're going to pay the price for it. In the same way, if you focus on enhancing your interaction with your body and the way you take care of your body and the way you nurture and feed it, that's something you can feel good about immediately. You don't feel like I'm depriving myself of something. I want more of this or more of that or some different kind of food. You can just feel good about being a better mother to your own body. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. Today, we're going to dive into emerging science of hypnotherapy as it relates to your health and wellness as we connect with Dr. David Spiegel. Dr. Spiegel is the Associate Chair of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine, and he's also the co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer at Reverie. He's a psychiatrist with more than 45 years of clinical and research experience studying stress, pain, sleep, and hypnosis. Educated at Harvard and Yale, he has written 13 books, 404 scientific journal articles, and 170 book chapters. He started Reverie so that you can tap into his expertise and change your mind. Dr. David Spiegel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Karina. I'm very glad to be here. I have to say, it has been my pleasure to get to know you through the many podcasts you have guested on and to hear your melodic voice as well. I can see it's like you were made for this. And now one more time. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I wanted to start our conversation first with what really made you to decide to focus on hypnosis as a modality in psychiatric work. It's part genetic and part environmental, Karina. I am the child of two psychiatrists and psychoanalysts who told me as I was growing up that I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. And here I am. My father was in combat in North Africa in World War II. And before he shipped out, a Viennese refugee who couldn't serve in the military, but who was a psychiatrist, a forensic psychiatrist who had learned about hypnosis, offered to teach young army docs about it. So my father studied with him, used it to help treat post-traumatic stress disorder, pain control for men who were wounded in combat. The dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. And I occasionally got to watch him make a film of a patient who was undergoing hypnosis for things like non-epileptic seizures. It was quite dramatic to watch. I took a course when I got to medical school and I figured I better learn about it formally. It was pretty interesting. My first patient when I was on pediatrics rotation at Children's Hospital in Boston and the nurse said, Spiegel, your next admission is in room 342. And I could just follow the sound of her wheezing down the hall. She was in status asthmaticus. She was unresponsive to epinephrine under the skin. They were thinking about general anesthesia and then steroids. And so I get in the room and there's this pretty 15-year-old redhead, bolt upright in bed, knuckles white, struggling for breath. Her mother's standing there crying. There's a nurse in the room. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? There were no more medication options. I said, do you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nodded. I got her hypnotized. And then I realized we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I'm thinking, what am I going to tell her? I came up with something very subtle and clever. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. She isn't wheezing anymore. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. And my intern comes looking for me. And I thought he was going to pat me on the back and say, nice job, Spiegel. What on earth did you do? Instead, he said, the nursing supervisor has filed a complaint that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, I lived there for seven years. Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws. That is not on the list. And her mother was standing right next to me when I did it. And he says, well, you're going to have to stop doing this. And I said, oh, really? Why? 
And he said, because it might be dangerous. Karina, that's one of the weird things about hypnosis. It's the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. It's been around for 250 years. And yet people have to either misperceive it as being ridiculous and a stage show trick or terribly dangerous. And it's neither of those things. I just said, tell you what, you can take me off the case if you want, but as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her something I know is not true. He stops off and there was a meeting, a council of war among the attending and the chief resident, my intern, and they came up with a radical solution to the problem. On Monday, they said, let's ask the patient. I don't think that had ever been done before. And she said, oh, I like this. I want to keep doing it. Now, she had been hospitalized monthly for three months. She had one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. And it was Karina right in front of my eyes. It didn't take very long. I could see the change just in the way that she managed her fear and stress and discomfort. And I never forgot it. And that's why 7,000 patients later, I'm still doing it. And why I built Reverie to try and make what we've learned available to anyone who wants to use it. We have this three-pound organ on the top of our bodies, our brains, that are our major evolutionary advantage. But it doesn't come with a user's manual. And there are things you can do with your brain that you may not have realized. And that's why I'm here. I have to say that story resonates with me for a couple of reasons, one of which is that I had a dear friend who had asthma growing up, and when they would have an asthmatic attack, it's like they automatically entered a world of panic. And because it's an incredibly fear-inducing thing to suddenly not be able to breathe. When you see that up close and personal, I think it changes how you view it. I then experienced an asthma attack, only one in my life, when I was around 22 years old at college. And I think it was a pollen in the air or something that just affected me. And I was alone in my dorm room and suddenly couldn't breathe and couldn't get air, started to panic. And this is before cell phones. I'm aging myself. <laughs> but I had to sit down and really just call my breathing, like just try to meditate into a relaxed state. And then it passed. And so I was able to get through this. Now, before I discovered your work and started research for this podcast episode, I didn't really understand that there was such a thing as self-hypnosis. I, through doing this work and reading up on you and listening to podcasts you've been on, I'm like, oh my gosh, I actually was doing self-hypnosis in this situation. And in another case, when I was 18 years old, getting my wisdom teeth pulled and the doctor had given me what they said was a threshold of local anesthesia that they could give me for the day. And they paying medicine wore off when they were cracking my last tooth to remove because it was in the jawline, right? Incredible pain. And so I had to essentially enter this meditative state and say, picture myself on the beach with one of my dear friends walking, enjoying this moment, like just breathe through it as tears did stream from my eyes and as a clamp was in my mouth to finish this process. It was an amazing moment for me and that I realized that the power of the mind could get me through something that's incredibly stressful, incredibly painful, incredibly traumatic, and without feeling on the heels of it like I had intense trauma about going to the dentist, which is something I've actually, I think, worn as a badge of courage over the course of my life. Like, well, I could get through that. I could get through most things. I'd just really love for you to talk about what this research is around self-hypnosis and putting that power in the hands of individuals like us, as opposed to the prescription of a doctor to I'm not knocking Western medicine without this sorts of treatments with people with debilitating asthma would not necessarily be alive today. So this isn't meant to treat, diagnose, or cure. We're having an open discussion here. It's a health and wellness skill, but you did several things that, first of all, are very self-hypnotic. You shifted your focus of attention away from the fact that this dentist wasn't giving you adequate anesthesia and that the thing went on too long, that you were feeling terrible pain. But at the same time, you said, I don't entirely have to concentrate on the pain. I can concentrate on something else. I can leave my body here and go somewhere else. And we've done studies with children undergoing very painful, embarrassing procedures, having to have their bladders catheterized. And I just say, we're going to Disneyland. You pay a trick on the doctor. You know, you leave your body here and go somewhere else. You did that. You went to a vacation spot and you did something else. You took it as a challenge rather than a conquest. That is, you said, 
I can actually see this stressor as something that I can learn from and master. And the third thing that you did was you focused on taking care of your body. Because very often with stressors, we just feel immobilized and helpless. But one thing about any stressor you can do something about is change the way your body is reacting to it. And even if you haven't changed the stressor, so that dentist was still breaking your tooth and pulling it out, but you could do something about what you concentrated on and how your body felt. And that already teaches you means of beginning to master the stressor. And you did. And you wound up feeling proud of it. When people say that things like hypnosis are either dangerous or represent a loss of control, what you discovered yourself is an increase in control. You, I think, must have felt more confident when other stressors came along later that you could deal with them. And now as a woman in my 40s, having given childbirth twice, I think I was able to channel some of that knowledge without it's this innate knowledge within our bodies that I think we learn to forget is there. And I say learn to forget because we're taught by the medical system to go for the pill of, oh, you have pain, go grab the Advil. Oh, you have an issue in your foot, go to the doctor, get a brace, or you might need surgery and things like this. So much of the work around hypnosis has centered around stress, sleep, and pain because stress is something we have no matter what, right? Sleep is something we need to do healthfully. And pain often can't be addressed purely with drugs. Can you talk to us about how this action of hypnotherapy can really help? And and like this tool that you've created with Reverie can train people to access their own superpowers in this way. Yes, that's a lovely way to put it. Hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention. It's like getting so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching the movie. You enter the imagined world, believed in imagination. And to do that, you also dissociate. You put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. Right now, you're sitting on a chair, Karina. Hopefully, you were not feeling the sensations in your body touching the chair. If you were, we can stop the interview now. We have a natural ability to either focus on or focus away from things in our environment. Our brain is very good at that. And the third part of it is cognitive flexibility that you can try out things you didn't think you could do the way you did in the dentist's office, for example, or the way you did when you suddenly had this asthma attack. You discovered things about yourself that five minutes before you never would have thought of. And that ability is part of our brain's ability to adapt to the world, adapt to the environment, and master it. And that's what you learn to do, and that's what people can do with hypnosis. And the reason I co-founded Reverie is I wanted everybody to have the opportunity to do this, not just the people that I got to see, not just the people my colleagues got to see. And the other thing is that we have this bias in our culture that the only real medical treatments are incision, injection, or ingestion. Operate, inject some kind of medication, or take a pill. And the risk-benefit ratio of for chronic pain, for example, of opioids is vastly worse than it is with hypnosis. People can learn to control chronic pain with no side effects. There's a huge increase. There were 100,000 drug overdoses this past year in the United States, and most of them were not deliberate suicide attempts. There were people overdosing on opioids, on fentanyl, on, on drugs. They just go to sleep and don't wake up because it suppresses respiration. These drugs are terribly dangerous, and they're addictive. When people worry about hypnosis being dangerous, I say, you want danger start taking chronic opioids. You get danger there. I think it's an opportunity that we have overlooked for far too long to teach people how to use their brains. The strain and pain lies mainly in the brain. The brain interprets signals as painful, and you can learn to reinterpret them. One of your most recent pieces of work, and I think something really relevant to this show, is this paper that you put out with Marianne Barabas, and I apologize if I'm saying her name incorrectly, Barabas, hypnotizability and weight loss in obese subjects. Now, being probably in the beginning stages of perimenopause, I have noticed personally a little bit of weight gain around my middle where it was not a problem before. I'm interested on a personal level, and I think many of our listeners will be too, about how something like hypnosis could help us achieve not only our weight loss goals, but that long-term health, metabolic health. Sure. It's an issue a lot of us struggle with, and weight control is a huge problem in the United States because our diet is generally horrible. We 
have food that is overprocessed, tasteless, full of salt and sugar and refined substances that do us more harm than good. And we don't exercise enough. And we thought about how we use hypnosis to help people eat better, eat with respect for their bodies. And the problem is that people often worry about their hunger, their urges. They don't pay attention to their body's signals to them of satiety as well as hunger. We teach people how to go into a state of self-hypnosis, get comfortable, imagine you're floating in a bath, lake, a hot tub, or floating in space, and then concentrate on three concepts. One, for my body, the wrong foods or too much of the foods can be damaging. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. So you think of feeding your body. You mentioned you've had two children. You would never force more food or the wrong kind of food into a baby's mouth than you knew was good for it. But your body is as dependent upon you as your baby was. Think of your baby as if your body as if it were your baby and feed it the way you would feed your baby with the same care and concern. And one of the interesting things about the capacity of hypnosis to stimulate imagination is that you can actually enjoy eating more even while you eat a diet that is respectful of your body. Because you can eat like a gourmet. You can focus on the texture, the aroma, the flavor, the temperature of the food, savor every bite, and have a wonderful, enjoyable meal that is composed of food that is better for your body. The amount that you eat has virtually nothing to do with how much you enjoy eating. And very often, you remember the first taste of something, and then you get in a conversation or you watch television or something, and you don't even notice the rest of the stuff you're eating. It's a matter of learning to enjoy eating more and eat with respect for your body. In reviewing this piece, I saw that some of this research started from a smoking cessation study that you did back in the 70s. Now, the simple, it really reminded me of meditative mantras in a way, or affirmations. What is the primary difference between something like this, a self-hypnosis, or perhaps the similarity with some of these ideas of positive affirmations and even meditation? That's a very good point, Karina, because one of the things that we focus on is what we're for, not what we're against. I can remember driving up the freeway in Connecticut when I was in college, and there was a sign that said, are you dying for a cigarette? And a lot of people say, yeah, I am. It's clever, except you're focusing on what you're against. And instead, what you can do intensively with hypnosis is focus on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. We all have lots of urges that we don't act on. You'd like the urge, the money in the local bank, but you don't go take it because you're going to pay the price for it. In the same way, if you focus on enhancing your interaction with your body and the way you take care of your body and the way you nurture and feed it, that's something you can feel good about immediately. You don't feel like I'm depriving myself of something. I want more of this or more of that or some different kind of food. You can just feel good about being a better mother to your own body. And as you mentioned, affirmations, you focus on what you're for. And that is a much more powerful thing because the best way to change behavior is intermittent positive reinforcement. Rather than feeling deprived or that you're not giving yourself something to eat that you want, or deprived of the urge to put more tar and nicotine into your lungs, you can say, I'm going to be a better caretaker for my own body. I'm going to respect and protect my body. We had a reverie user who was a social worker and who had smoked for 25 years. And she didn't want to stop smoking, but we had a study going, so she thought, I'll sign up. And it was the same idea. For my body, smoking is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. And she didn't like it the first time she tried it. But she went home that night and tried it again. And she lit up a cigarette. And she looked at it and she said, Feh, who needs this? And she has not smoked a cigarette since. And she said, I didn't even want to stop. My friends can't believe it. She's now helping her friends stop smoking. Because she used the hypnosis to focus on what she was for and respecting and protecting her body rather than what she was against. And the urge just wasn't important anymore to her. And she actually said to me, you know, Dr. Spiegel, this is some crazy ass voodoo shit. And I mean that in a good way. It's a way of just shifting gears, being trying out, being different and seeing what it feels like and focusing on what you're for on respecting and protecting your body. And that can have tremendous power. It doesn't have to be difficult or painful. You don't have to feel sorry for yourself. You can pat yourself on the back and say, I'm finally being a better parent to my own body. Good for me. 
I think you're touching on something that we should talk about. And that is simply that food, we can use food as a drug. And many of us do. If we go for the foods that are very high in sugars, when you see this in the world of alcoholics, often people who have stopped drinking will transfer the addiction to sugar. And they just continue on that path because it scratches a lot of the same itch, right? We have sometimes a relationship with food that isn't healthy, where we consume the foods that scratch the itch of the salt, the fat, the sugar, highly processed and don't actually provide a lot of micronutrients that can support a healthy metabolism and a healthy overall gut microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. From this ideation, I could almost take that same viewpoint. Instead of saying, these are the things that are bad, I could say, these are the things that are good that I'm welcoming in and use that perspective along with something like this self-meditation to have success. That's what it sounds like to me. That's a very good summary of most of what goes on. There's a couple of pieces to that. One is, yes, you want to focus. It, you shouldn't feel that you're going to starve yourself or you're going to deprive yourself. Instead, you should think, I'm just going to take better advantage of this wealth of food and drink that we have available to us and get the stuff not that big companies want to process and sell to me and put just enough flavor in it so that you need to keep eating more. You know, I noticed when I go to France, and I do that often, I never gain weight. And I love the food. It's wonderful. And it's because it is unprocessed, beautifully cooked, flavorful. And so I know when I have really had bite of piece of fish or meat in France, whereas here, you keep eating, hoping you're going to taste something. Finally, you'll get the flavor itself is reinforcing. It convinces you you've eaten it. So you tend not to overeat because you know when you're eating it and you know when you've had enough. Often that's not the case here. Part of it is just changing what eating means for you. It's a means of nurturing your body and enjoying the process of eating. And you know when you're hungry and you know when you're full and then you stop. It becomes a more all-encompassing, pleasurable experience, not a struggle to finally get a taste of something. This echoes nicely a lot of what Dr. William Lee has shared on this podcast. He's been a guest a couple of times, wrote a book called Eat to Beat Disease and another book called Eat to Beat Your Diet. And he really just tries to counsel his entire community to say, fall in love with food and look at all the bounty of these wonderful foods that we have available. You don't need to just buy this packaged stuff that is engineered and it's not in a food-like state much anymore either. That's industrial eating is no fun and it's not good for your body. And you mentioned, Karina, the meditative part of it. And the meditative tradition is related to hypnosis. It's not the same thing. It's an Eastern tradition that is not meant to solve a problem. You know, hypnosis is Western. We're always trying to be efficient. The French like to say that Americans live to work and the French work to live, that kind of thing. But if you think of meditation as a way of just open presence, just letting feelings flow through you, getting over yourself, not focusing too much on who you thought you were and focusing on your body, that's helpful. But the recommendation is do it half an hour, twice a day. Many people do that. It's a wonderful thing. But the nice thing about hypnosis is you can do something effective in five minutes. And like in that paper with Marianne Barabas, in one condition taught people to eat while focusing, using hypnosis on intensifying the flavor, texture, the aroma, eating with respect for your body. And this was a weight loss study. And these women lost about 20 pounds, and they kept it off for three months, the ones in the hypnosis condition, which was significantly more than the women in the other condition. It can be highly effective, and it can last. Diets don't work. People starve themselves, they lose weight, they gain it back. This is not a diet, it's a different way of eating and living. I've had the pleasure of watching you walk people through the self-hypnosis, and even in the case of Tom Bilyeu, I think you actually helped him enter this state as a skeptic of hypnosis. I want to tell you that I downloaded the Reverie app on my Android. Thank you for having it on Android. And while my dog was distracting me, I have a five-month-old puppy, so it was kind of a lot. I still was able to get into relatively, I think, okay connected state. I did not notice, because I think you're asking people to be buoyant, to feel the arm lift, and really feel themselves floating. I did not notice my hand automatically raising, like I had to actually pull it up. But then I had this interesting cessation where I felt 
an awkward pulling on my skin if I tried to put it down. And it just didn't feel good. It felt wrong. And it wasn't that it was naturally staying up on its own as much as if I tried to put it down, it felt really gross. I, as a skeptic of being able to perform self-hypnosis while my puppy was trying to chew on my elbow, probably too, I did this and you quashed the skeptic in me. I really didn't think that I could use an app coupled with your voice, which is beautifully there and present. I was able to enter some sort of this altered hypnotic state. I wanted for you to perhaps describe in your own perspective how you're able to transmit this knowledge and this ability to hypnotize oneself with your aid through an app. What brought this to be? How does it work, really? I love that description. And Karina, I applaud you for your exploratory courage and just trying it out. And for pointing out that you surprised yourself that this was not the ideal circumstance for doing this with your puppy going after your elbow and all that. And you sort of were inclined not to believe anything real was happening. And yet you noticed that your left hand felt different from your right and it didn't feel right being down. You were able to shift gears, have a different premise about what your body was processing and experience it. That's totally cool. And that's why we built Reverie is that all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. I'm not doing anything to you. I'm showing you how to use your brain differently and change the way your body and your brain feels. And you have an ability to do it. What's actually happening in the brain? We've taken people and put them into the MRI scanners. MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, is a powerful technique that gives you beautiful images of brain anatomy and function, what's going on in the brain. And we find that three things happen in the brain. What was happening in your brain is, first of all, you were turning down activity in a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. It's like a C on its edges in the middle of your brain. And the front part is the center of what we call the salience network. It's the part of your brain. It's a pattern matching region that if you hear like a, a loud noise, it hijacks your attention. You think, uh-oh, what's going on? Somebody's shooting somebody out there. What's happening? We turn down activity in that region. You're less worried. You didn't worry about the puppy. The puppy was there. The puppy was doing his thing. You were doing yours. It didn't disrupt your attention the way it might ordinarily. The second thing is we increase functional connection between the executive control network in your prefrontal cortex, a part of the brain that manages what you do and plans and controls things. And a little part of the brain called the insula, it's Latin for island. It's a part of the brain that is a mind-body conduit. It connects the brain to the body, helps you control what's happening in the body, turn up heart rate, turn it down, as you do, for example, when you're stressed, and also perceive what's happening in your body. You're controlling and aware of, more aware of what's happening in your body as you were when you had the asthma attack. And part of it is when people panic, it's like a snowball effect. You think, uh-oh, something bad's happening and your body reacts to it. And then you notice that your body's reacting to it. You had trouble breathing. You get more anxious. The more anxious you get, the more your body tenses up until you manage to calm your body. You're focused on helping your body deal with the stressor and you manage to break the attack. The third thing that happens is inverse connectivity between the executive control region and the posterior cingulate cortex, that's in the back of that inverted C. It's a part of the brain we call the default mode network. It's involved in recent memory, but primarily in self-reflection. When you're not doing much and you're thinking, who am I? What do people think of me? What am I like? What am I not like? It's that part of the brain. And what you're doing is saying, my brain knows how I usually handle things like this, but I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And that's the cognitive flexibility in hypnosis. You can actually do things differently, even if you thought you couldn't do them, even if you never thought of doing them. You never really thought that your left arm would suddenly start to feel different from your right, that it would feel gross if you put it down. And all of a sudden you're doing it. And what's primary is your experience of it, not your pre-existing thought that that couldn't possibly happen. You just kind of put that aside. That's a great opportunity for change, for handling things you didn't think you could handle, as you described with the wisdom teeth being removed too. This is a capacity that we have that we can utilize. And one commonality with hypnosis is that experienced meditators also turn down activity in the default mode network. When the meditation teacher says, get over yourself, don't think about yourself, just let experiences flow through you, that's part of what's also happening in the brain. It's a state of intense focus and cognitive flexibility. You can do more than you thought you could do. 
And you don't have to take it from me. You experienced it yourself. Some other examples that you mentioned on some other podcasts you've been on that I heard, um, one of them being when you have this intense level of focus so much so that you don't really realize what's going on around you. I have an early memory of being around eight years old and engrossed in a book as one example. And another example being really focused on my work. It's like the day will just slip right by and you don't realize that time has passed. Or when you're in that intense level of focus, and I'm sure you've experienced this when you are reading a ton of research and you suddenly start to connect all these dots together and you have some realization about how these things fit together. And it feels like you've had a moment of profound awakening in a way. I mean, I've experienced this in in research too in archaeology in my undergrad. I think helping people identify the signals of this that they may have experienced in their whole life already will help them understand that it isn't new. (laughs) You're exactly right. It's not unnatural, it's supernatural. That is, all eight-year-old kids are in trances all the time. You call an eight-year-old into dinner, she doesn't hear you, she's out playing with her friends. She's in that same state that you're in when you're so engaged in reading something as an eight-year-old that you just, what else is going on around you? And that's a resource we have. I think most children are extremely hypnotizable. And I think they are in part because it's a time in life when your brain is relatively empty and you gotta fill it with things. And so you're really good at learning. And children, you know, learning, work and play are all the same thing for a child. It's a shame we try to make them into little adults because they just soak things up. They love learning things. And I think some of us lose that ability as we grow up or we can do it less than we used to as children. But it's a way of intensely learning before you're worrying about what should make sense and what shouldn't. That is tremendously valuable. And it's a tool that we can learn to continue to use even when, unfortunately, we become adults. Some of the things that we're all trying to tackle to reach our best health, we've talked about stress, we've talked about pain, we've talked about nutrition, but there's also this element of sleep. And sleep is something that I think every time I bring on a registered dietitian or nutritionist, they're always saying that my three pillars are great nutrition, sleep, and water. (laughs) Like, we really just, Boiling it down to basics, get enough water, get the right nutrition and get healthy sleep. And most of your health problems will likely go away. But we often experience so many stresses in our lives that our brain is busy. Perhaps we don't have great sleep hygiene or we had some demands that kept us up when we should have been probably unwinding for the day. I'm curious to see what your thoughts are specific to how these methods can really support healthy sleep. Our most popular programs on the Reverie app is helping people get to sleep or get back to sleep. Karina, I used to worry when we started it that I was trying to build something because it's interactive. I ask a question, you give an answer, you get a different instruction depending on what you say, that it was maybe almost close to being as good as what happens in my office. And then I thought, you know what? If you wake up in the middle of the night and you need to get back to sleep, hopefully I'm not in your bedroom helping you go back to sleep. But I am on the app. And so in some ways, it's better. And what I teach people to do is dissociate their physical arousal from their mental arousal. Part of what happens if you wake up in the middle of the night, one mistake we make is look at the clock. Don't look at the clock. Turn the clock around. Don't be aware of what time it is when you wake up. That's an arousal cue. You just wake yourself up more because you start thinking, oh, my God, I have this much to do tomorrow and I won't have enough sleep. You're making it worse. Get your body comfortable. You are your body's keeper. Imagine you're floating in a bath, the lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. Another thing that I recommend is a special kind of breathing. And we can try it if you want. It's very straightforward. It's called cyclic sighing. And take cyclic sighing, it's called. Cyclic sighing. Okay. Make a little mental note of on a scale of zero to 10, how stressed you're feeling right now. And I'm sure after talking with me for a while, you're pretty stressed. Just remember that. And I'm going to ask you to do this now. Get comfortable. Inhale halfway by expanding your belly. Diaphragmatic breathing. Hold it. Now fill your lungs completely by expanding your chest. And then slowly exhale through your mouth. Now try it again. Inhale halfway through your nose with your belly. Hold. Fill your lungs completely. Expand your chest. And once again, slowly exhale through your mouth. 
Now one more time, inhale with your belly through your nose, hold, fill your lungs, expand your chest, and then slowly exhale through your mouth. How are you feeling now? Pretty relaxed. You feel a difference from before? Yeah, I feel like I'm just a little bit more calm. I think calm is the word. In just half a minute or a minute, you were able to help yourself and your body feel more calm and relaxed. And that's one thing I encourage people to do when they're trying to get back to sleep. You focus on comforting and helping your body to relax rather than getting your body all wrapped up in whatever is worrying you. And then if you're still worried about something, picture it on an imaginary screen as if you were watching a home movie of yourself, but outside of you, outside of your body. Just say, oh, yeah, there's something going on I'm thinking about, but I'll deal with it tomorrow. Keep your body floating and comfortable as if you were in a bath, the lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. And a whole lot of people find they surprise themselves by waking up hours later when the alarm goes off. They're back asleep. The combination of hypnosis and the cyclic sighing can be very helpful in either getting to sleep or getting yourself back to sleep. I find the auditory cues often help me too. So when I've had difficulty sleeping, often I put some earbuds in and listen to some calming music for me. That's great. Somebody who's really orally stimulated to peacefulness. That's great. Perhaps even that app and your voice will help with that too. (laughs) I'm working on it. Now, as relaxed as I am right now, I think it's also important that we continue to talk about a couple of things that relate to what you're doing here. One is there might be people that are skeptical listening that they're actually hypnotizable and how hypnotizable they are. I understand that you have created a test to help people do that, get there, and also then sort of avatars or categories that you assign to people based on how they perform. I wrote mine down. I'm the poet, at least from that first somewhat distracted session. I plan to take it again and see how I do. But I'd love for you to talk about the test and how and why it works the way it does, and then what these archetypes are and what they can mean for you. Sure. I'm glad you asked about that. The test is called the hypnotic induction profile, and I use it with every hypnosis patient I see. The first hypnotic thing I do, because I want to understand what their particular style of hypnotic responsiveness is. Whatever it is, we can help you. It's a matter of how we best use it to help you get to your goal. And hypnotizability when you're an adult is as stable a trait as IQ. It just doesn't change very much. It's a matter of learning what your style is and how to use it. The people who are the highest on the hypnotizability scale are the poets. They're people who live in their world of imagination, who become easily absorbed and engaged in whatever they're doing and worry about the lunch that they missed some other time. They're just able to use their imagination in an intense and highly focused way, believed in imagination. When you were in that dentist's office, your body was there, but you were off on the beach somewhere and you really helped yourself. You really reduced the discomfort of the experience. It's intense, it's focused, it's immediate. That's what poets are like. They create an imagined world and inhabit it. The people whose hypnotizability is a bit lower than that are the diplomats. They're people who are constantly negotiating between two worlds. And one is that imagined world that the poets can live in very easily. And the other is the more ordinary world. And they're trying to make sense of it. Does this work? Doesn't it? They try it for a while, then they step back and reflect on it. You didn't step back and reflect. You just did it. Some people can have that experience. And then they step back and think, well, how can I best use this? Does it make sense? Does it work for this problem or not? It's a combination of brain and spirit where they're thinking mind and body. They're thinking about it, but they're also doing it. And then there are the researchers, the people who are just not easily hypnotizable, but who can think carefully and critically about their experience and find new ways to do it. And I saw a lovely woman yesterday, 72-year-old African-American retired woman who wanted saw me to stop smoking. And she had actually stopped. She'd smoked for 50 years, 5-0. Her lungs, she noticed she was starting to cough when she went to bed at night. And she'd stopped on August 1st, but said, I'm worried that I'm going to go back to it. And I had some Nicorette gum, but I didn't want to use it. Very thoughtful about it. And she turned out to be the researcher. She thinks through everything. 
And she had a very responsible government job, and she used her brain all the time to do it right. She wasn't married. She had no children. And she'd been married twice. And she said, my first husband hit me one day. And the next day, I was in the lawyer's office getting a divorce. Now, there are a lot of women who suffer things like that and try and come to some accommodation. And she very wisely said, to hell with this. I don't want any part of it. I said to her, I think I have a way to help you. And that is, I said, I want you to think for my body, smoking's a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. And she said, wait a minute, I got to get a pencil and write it down. Now, a poet like you wouldn't have to write it down. You just experience it. So she's getting the concept of what she's for, but in a very structured way. And I said to her, you know what I think you need? You need a divorce from cigarettes. You got the message with that first husband. You've gotten the message from the cigarettes you've been smoking. That's what you need. And she thanked me. She said, thank you. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Three different styles. They can all be helped, but in different ways. And so where I find the test so useful and where every makes it useful is offering you a way of solving the problem you have, taking into account your style of hypnotizability. See, I really thought that I was not going to be that hypnotizable because I tend to be, I have skepticism really present. I come from that perspective, I think, first. But again, when I started to understand that I've had these moments in my life where I could define them, okay, well, that was a hypnotic moment or maybe longer than a moment. Like that was me exhibiting the things that you describe in your research and that you've talked about on podcasts that you've guested on. And it really, I'm surprised now because I purposely did not look into what each of these archetypes would be. I wanted you to surprise me. Now, that being said, I also wonder, as I read through all this, if there's an element, and this comes from my personal experience, I was also a smoker. I smoked for 16 years. I quit when I was 29 because I was making the decision to marry my future husband. And I didn't want to picture myself as a 40-year-old woman going and getting a carton of cigarettes. Like, this is just not the healthy life I want to be living. I didn't want to see him and I both suffer from cancer or other debilitating diseases that can erupt from chronic smoking. I was definitely a chronic smoker. I tried many things and many things didn't work. I tried even the Wellbutrin drug and that made me crazy anxious and I hated how I felt on it. I was convinced that people driving their cars in the street were trying to kill me if I was walking on the sidewalk because it just put me in that level of anxiety. I just kind of took a similar approach to what you've described here of saying, cigarettes are bad for me. I don't want to feel the way that they make me feel 20 years from now. This is something I have to say goodbye to. I'm just not going to smoke today and keep that happening in my mind every day. And then when I failed, because I did have failures, I made sure to forgive myself first. And I've always felt that was really central to my success in quitting smoking this ability to forgive myself for the folly of not always making the right choice in the right moment of slipping. And then I just gift my, let's say, quarter smoked pack of cigarettes to the next person I saw who was a smoker that would appreciate it. Just, okay, here you go. Take that away. I don't need it. What role do you think that forgiveness plays in this whole process? I think it plays an important role, forgiving yourself and forgiving your body. Your body is imposing limitations on you. It's got its limits and you recognize them and you accepted them. You said, I realized that I can't keep doing this to my body and expect it to allow me to do what I want to do with my life. You were forgiving your body its limitations and forgiving yourself. If you can't forgive yourself for having made mistakes, you're going to keep making mistakes. And what strikes me is the diplomatic way in which you've handled this, that you keep considering the alternatives. And like a good diplomat, you accept the point of view of the opposing position, but you accommodate to it and do what you need to do to make things better. And that's what you did. Yes, I think forgiveness is an important part of it. If you're too rigid about being self-critical, there's no point in changing because you're going to feel lousy about yourself anyway. So why not keep doing rotten things? But if you have the capacity to forgive, you say, you know, I can be a better person. I can learn from this. I can learn from my mistakes and accept them. And when you do that, you grow, you change. And that's a terrific thing. Well, and that's the reason I wanted to bring that example up because even though it was outside of the world of food, and let's say weight, right? To me, it is along the same lines because people can be addicted almost to that bowl of ice cream that they might want to have after dinner. If you identify it as something like in your work here, 
for my body overeating as a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body this respect and protection. I found it interesting that in this study, the two groups that did hypnosis, one that basically said those three things and one that didn't, that they had similar results. Was that a surprise to you? Somewhat. I think the three-point group did somewhat better, but not a lot. No, I think because there are two components. The book that I wrote with my late father was called Trance and Treatment. There's the hypnotic state. I think of people as engaging in transformation. That is, being in the hypnotic state itself is a state in which you're experiencing yourself, your body, and the world around you differently. You're giving yourself an immediate example of being different. And that helps you to put into perspective the things we tend to get trained to focus on when we have a poor diet, which is the urge to eat, the urge to have more. And you're so focused on that urge that you don't think about whether your body is still hungry, whether you really want to eat that or not, whether it's good for your body. People who go into an altered state and just say, I can be in the same situation, but experience it differently. And just that capacity to be different has value as a wellness skill to just try and approach things and be different as you're dealing with a problem like what you eat. And you did that. And that's what the women in this study did. They felt different. But in addition, the ones who were in the preferred hypnosis condition were focusing on thinking about respecting and protecting their bodies, being a good parent to your own body, nurturing it, feeding it appropriately, and stopping when you're full. It's the combination. But just being in that mental state can free you from your usual assumptions about what you have to do when you're confronted with food. Now, you said that the women that took part in this study, they lost 20 pounds and they kept it off for three months. How often did they self-meditate throughout the study? Was it daily? Was it every meal? We instructed them to do it daily. And anytime you have an urge to eat, you're troubled about it. Sit down or lie down, go into the state of self-hypnosis and do it. They did it regularly, daily. The nice thing is you've got it with you anytime you come to a conflict. You come to a point where you have to make a decision about what to do. And you can help yourself get back in gear with what you want to do. I had one man, Alan, said that he saw a picture of a party that he'd been at. And he said, you know, it's really weird. That guy is wearing the same unusual shirt that I was wearing. I didn't notice anybody with that. And then he looked at it more closely. He said, oh, my God, that was me because he had this huge pot belly and he didn't recognize it as himself. And he said, my kids have been telling me for a while I got to do something. He started using brie. He started eating with respect. And the other thing is he said, I can eat more if I burn calories. And he would look for excuses to drive to the store to get things. And he got to where he would walk all over the area. He would walk for hours to get from one place to another just to enjoy the exercise. He lost 30 pounds. He kept it off for six months. And it was going around converting his friends to doing that too. He reconstituted his relationship to his body. And it started with his recognizing his denial about what he was doing to his body. And he was just able to take a new point of view about it and become a different person in the way he treated his body. It's that whole concept of your body as a temple. But also, I think layering in forgiveness for your the way you got to that point as well, allowing yourself to put it to bed in a way and to not no longer identify that as who you are so that you can move on. Well, you know, Karina, you mentioned people dealing with stress and trauma. And I saw a woman who comes from a country that is well known for not treating women well. And it turned out she told me she was depressed. She came, got out of that country she said men on the street would say horrible things to me. I realized my body wasn't my own. And she told me that she had been raped as a 12-year-old by their landlord. And the family was afraid to do anything because they didn't want to be thrown out of their apartment. She was chronically depressed, retired early. And I said, you still have a problem with how you feel about your body and yourself. And I got her hypnotized. She was very hypnotizable. And I said, I want you to picture yourself when you were 12 years old. I want you to imagine you're your own mother. And I want you to look at your 12-year-old self and tell me, was this her fault? Did she deserve what was done to her? And she started to cry and she said, no, I'm stroking her hair. And she came to a different feeling that she had carried around with her her entire life. And many sexual assault victims blame themselves for things they didn't control. You'd rather feel guilty than helpless. She called me a week later and she said, Dr. Spiegel, my psychiatrist wants to know what you did to me because I'm not depressed anymore. And she said, my friends don't recognize me. They don't know who I am. 
And I just got an email from her two days ago, six months later, saying, I thank God for the doctor who referred me to you. I still feel like a different person. Sometimes we're sort of imprisoned by these imprints of terrible experiences and the capacity to forgive, in this case, forgive herself for something that was not her fault, changed her. Wow. Well, Dr. Spiegel, you freed her. You gave her freedom. Yeah, I think so. And I feel good about it. Yeah. I wondered, as I'm getting to know the app, if there are ways in which you can program it. I say that because let's say I want to remember to participate in a healthy habit each day. Like I want to remember to take my omega-3s for my brain and eye health and for everything else. I've been in the field of health and wellness for a long time. And one of the things I'll say to our, our customers is like, you can't get the benefit from something that you don't do. Like you, <laughs> you know, if you don't take it every day. I think something that we could all use a little help, like almost that proverbial string on the finger to help us remember the things we're supposed to do. We do have, the app is now prepared for you to select the kinds of problems that you want to work on. And there's about 10 of them that you can choose from to have you go right to them when you want to program your day to do them and to remind yourselves. What people could do is, is remind themselves about focusing on eating. And then that would be a reminder of what you eat and what you can do. The app is continuing to evolve, but Reverie does now help you select the things you want to focus on and send you reminders, text, email reminders, that this is something that maybe it's time for you to do. We are moving definitely in that direction of having people work with us to create their own program of self-nurturing and self-help. Well, that's awesome. And I know that you have a seven-day free trial, risk-free to join. There's options to join with a subscription after that seven days and even to do something like an annual membership or a lifetime access for a one-time fee. You've made it as accessible as I think you can. And with it continuing to improve, I think that's awesome. And frankly, having Dr. David Spiegel share with you these moments to help you get into a meditative state, I think is invaluable in itself. Just thank you for taking this time with me today. This has been an incredible treat. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. And I appreciate what you're trying to help people do and helping them learn how to live better, to become more self-reliant, proud of yourself and a better parent to your body and yourself. And that's a wonderful thing to do. So thank you for doing that too. Wow. What an incredible treat. Now, this will not be my last conversation with Dr. David Spiegel. I'm going to be connecting with him in coming weeks on my other podcast, Care More, Be Better. We will dive more deeply into subjects of how to heal the brain and really work through things like PTSD. This episode will be something that I announce broadly once it's available, and you can go ahead and find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Dr. David Spiegel, Reverie, hypnotherapy, all of that in our show notes and in our expanded blog, which will also include complete transcripts that will be available at orlonutrition.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. And while you're at it, leave us a review, a five-star rating, thumbs up, or a comment. Each of these actions can help more people to discover our show. As we close today's show, I hope that you will raise a cup with me as I say my closing words. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.